0: Temp check.
1: Time minimum ten dollars per order excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. China's ambitions in space have been in the news a lot recently, and especially in the last couple of years, just three months or so after the Perseverance's landing on the surface of Mars, something that, like many people I know, I watched in real time, uh, China landed its own rover on the red planet. The Tianwen spacecraft entered Martian orbit in February, and then on May 14th, its lander unit touched down on the Martian surface, and just a little over a week after that, the Zhurong rover exited the lander and rolled out onto Martian soil. This followed on some other notable Chinese accomplishments. You know, in January of 2019, China was the first country to land a craft on the far side of the moon, incorrectly known as the dark side of the moon. It's actually just the far side, and a a rover called the Jade Rabbit 2, the started sending data back to Earth. And in late 2020, the Chang'e 5 brought back the first moon rock samples that we've seen in uh, four decades. China's space program, of course, has not been without controversy. Listeners probably recall that very recently the first stage of a Chinese Long March 5B made an uncontrolled reentry, thankfully landing in the Indian Ocean and not on a populated land area. In this time of intensifying bilateral competition, Chinese successes in space are raising anxieties in some quarters here in the U.S., uh, while it used to be the case, I think that Chinese accomplishments seemed always to be decades behind what the U.S. had achieved. It's clear that the the gap has narrowed appreciably. Uh, the Zhurong lander happening, you know, so close on the heels of the Perseverance's landing on Mars might have driven that home for some people. So on today's show, we're going to be discussing China's achievements in space, its ambitions in both the near and long term, its challenges, and the reactions that it's provoked from other spacefaring nations and especially from the United States. To tell us about all this, I am delighted delighted to welcome Andrew Jones to Seneca. Andrew is a reporter based in Helsinki, Finland, who over the last several years has become the go-to reporter writing on China's space program. He has contributed reporting on the topic to many, many major publications, and I am glad we finally managed to get him on the program. Andrew, welcome to Seneca.
0: Hi, Kaiser. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Andrew, let's start off with how you ended up becoming, as I said, you know, the foremost English language reporter who is working on Chinese space exploration. I mean, you'd think there'd be a lot of people writing on this topic as important and and, and frankly, as sexy as it is. But as it turns out, that's just not the case. Tell us about your own background and, you know, the confluence of interests that led you uh, to the enviable place where you are today.
0: Well, that's kind of a a long story (laughs) in which it's clear that I really didn't have any kind of direction. So uh, I think that the very first thing would be falling in love with space when I was about three years old, Mm. seeing some pictures from the Pioneer or or Voyager spacecraft, you know, in the mid 80s. And it was kind of mind blowing to see those kinds of things were out right there. However, growing up in in rural Wales wasn't really the kind of hotspot for space activities, uh, and so on. So I, I kind of lost that interest and uh, passion for space. That that kind of came back to me when being faced with having my own, my own children, um, I was kind of thinking what, what kind of made a big impression on me. And Space, I realized, was something which helped to give a big picture view of things, uh, which I found was very important. And also just being fascinating, you know, in in its own rights. So I started reading, you know, children's books about space and planets, and and so on to to my eldest child. Started getting into it myself. So listening to podcasts, trying to follow reports more and more. And this, this kind of came at a time when I was working as a journalist without any kind of clear direction. There was a interregnum where there was no editorial guidance. So the ESA Rosetta mission, which went to a, a comet, I think this was right 2014. Right. Yeah. So I got interested in this, started rep- just following the mission, reporting on this. Anyway, it changed the direction. So can we report on China? Well, okay, sure. But I have this space bug. So I asked the editor-in-chief if I could see what's going on with China's space program. This is, you know, around 2015. And to my surprise, there's actually lots going on. I mean, we heard about the odd Shenzhou crewed mission, which would be, you know, big news. But otherwise, lots of launches, lots of plans, very little coverage. So with some kind of background in, in you know, China studies uh, and the political side, um, international relations background, um, having spent some time in China and an interest in space. Well, it was kind of took the chance to see if I could make myself useful uh, by combining some of these things.
1: What, what do you think accounts for the dearth of coverage, or the the, the the very small number of individuals who actually have made this their beat?
0: Well, I think that there's there's it would be a few factors. One would be that China traditionally hasn't been seen as a major space power. It actually started off in you know the very early days of the space age. China was there involved. So already in 1956 we had uh, Chen Shui-sen Heading back from the USA to China under you know quite what those circumstances were, I'm not quite <laughs> quite I'm not quite sure I can untangle those yeah. quite properly. But from those early days, that was pre-Sputnik, so this is like a year before Sputnik and the, the launch of the the space age. So Joe uh, and lie approved a space program which was basically to design missiles to deliver nuclear warheads, which is much th- the same rationale as. The United States and the Soviet Union getting into space as it were, right, so right so, bit of a backstory, but with the Cultural Revolution and so on and the the weakness of the economy, China didn't really get its act together for quite a few decades after this, so I think there was a matter of perception. The other thing is it's very difficult to gain insight into the space program and to actually come across clear information, especially in English so it was i I would imagine that it, it was you know partly. Just practical difficulties and partly perception, and so on. But um, I think that's going to be not going to be the case for much longer in terms of interest.
1: Yeah, you'll have some competition. You know, I mean, during the cultural evolution, we did you know establish contact with the Trisolarans. Let's not forget that. Oh, of course, yeah. (laughs) A little inside, you know, three-body joke there. But anyway, um, so the governmental agency in charge of China's space program is called the China National Space Administration, the CNSA. Would would, be, would we be right to think of it as simply the equivalent of NASA or, you know, the European Space Agency? Or are there, as I suspect, maybe some differences that we should be aware of? And and maybe you could give a quick overview of it, you know, a history of it, where it sits in the bureaucracy, its budget maybe, or what ties it has to the to the Chinese military?
0: Right. So when we we think of what countries are doing in space, we tend to think of the the national space agencies. So that would be NASA for the Americans, Roscosmos for Russia, European Space Agency, YAXA for Japan. For China, it's a little bit different. So we we have the China National Space Administration, but this is more of a front office, like an international face to China's space program. Uh It's actually a very small organization with maybe a few hundred employees, it doesn't have the major decision-making power that you'd equate with, with NASA. So CNSA sits under SASTINT, which is the State Administration for Science, Technology and Industry for National Defense, which itself would be under the Ministry of Information and Industry and Technology. So right, yeah, and that again would be under the State Council. And the understanding is that there would be some small leading groups at the top of the party, which would be making ultimately the major decisions as to where resources are going and why.
1: So the the State Council um, and the party leadership really has a much bigger role in it, a much more direct hand in CNSA than, say, the uh, White House would in NASA. Yeah, absolutely. You see, it's just a few hundred employees. That's uh, probably surprising to people. Uh, and what do these, these people tend to be drawn from, you know, the ranks of uh, the aerospace industry? Are, are they the Air Force people? Are they from, you know, uh, the ARPA, the 2nd Artillery Division? Or what, 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 where would they be from?
0: Well, I think for CNSA, it would be more on the, on the science and technology side. Um, and one major part of the CNSA would be look overseeing the, the exploration side of the Chinese space program. So you you could kind of break normally space programs into the civil, military, commercial, and science and exploration side of things. So CNSA is more focused on science and and, um, exploration. I would say that the one major actor, which is the most important in terms of following closely, would be a state-owned enterprise called the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC. And hmm. they would have around yeah. two hundred thousand employees and Cask is engaged in developing and manufacturing the launch vehicles which put spacecraft into orbit, developing and making satellites, spacecraft, developing propulsion. So the you know, the the engines, the high thrust engines you need to get into orbit. The electronic side, all these, all these kinds of aspects, and actually, actually Cask is also a defense contractor, so it would be engaged in making drones and, and so on. And there, there's a, a sister SOE called Casic, very similarly named, mm-hmm. and they're a lesser contractor in terms of space, but they are a major missile maker, and also they're building their own commercial space interests as well, which are quite notable.
1: That's, that's fascinating. Andrew, what motivates Chinese space exploration? Here in the U.S., uh, I think we tend to frame it in terms of strategic competition with the U.S. Uh, the, the idea that you know China uh, by dominating space will it will confer some advantage on China militarily. Beijing sees space as an area of American vulnerability. Is is this something that Beijing talks about openly, or is this something that we just simply infer
0: or impute? I think looking at the level of kind of public discourse and and the uh, the coverage that we see of china's space program the in western coverage the the notion of china's space endeavors being primarily military is something that we we see a lot and i think that that's these kinds of perceptions we have of different countries space endeavors are quite Deeply ingrained. So when we think of NASA or the Americans in space, we tend to think of the International Space Station and the exploration missions and astronauts up at the the ISS. Mm-hmm. However, we're not so not so aware that the military space budget for the United States would be bigger than NASA's. Okay, so we're kind of right. not so aware of those kinds of aspects, and also there are challenges or rather barriers to to reporting on some areas of of those activities. I think for China it's like many other countries who are engaged in, in space activities, it's a mixture of developing their the national strength, so in terms of the economy, developing precision, engineering, material science, all these kinds of things which might have spin-off impacts on the economy. There would be the matter of just purely conducting science, also prestige internationally, soft power. Um and I think one of the major aspects here is domestic legitimacy, which m- may be more of a consideration for China than for other countries.
1: Excellent. I mean, so in other words, it's it's very much like uh like it is in the United States. Andrew, maybe before we plunge ahead, let's 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 talk through a list of the major missions and accomplishments of China's space program. You know, maybe you can organize them as you did uh, earlier, talking about you know the the, the uh, uh, ones that are, are primarily space exploration, commercial, civil, uh, what have you. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of our listeners will have heard of any of these things, like, you know, Shenzhou and Chang'e and uh, Tianwen and Tiangong and Beidou. But with all these Chinese names, it's kind of a jumble. I think a lot of people will uh, be a bit confused. So um, let's, let's talk about what some of the major undertakings in space exploration have been to date.
0: So some of the earliest endeavors which China carried out were developing satellites for particular applications for example remote sensing or then weather forecasting so a country so vast as china which has suffered massively from floods and droughts and so on uh, would benefit dr- uh, dramatically from from better understanding of the weather conditions so the the fengyun Satellite Constellation, which they are still building out. I think they're going from the the 1980s and they're still developing new and and better satellites now. Mm -hmm. Those are something which have contributed greatly, not only to the understanding for meteorology in China, but also just for, for people's daily lives. Then you'd have a newer system like Gaofeng, which is part of the China high resolution Earth Observation System. So this is a Mm -hmm. a series of satellites at different kinds of altitudes, which are returning optical and synthetic radar imagery to provide high-resolution and medium-resolution images of of China and surrounding areas, which can be used for ascertaining resources, for urban planning, for disaster avoidance and risk mitigation. All these kinds of applications. One Mm -hmm. of the more recent ones, which I think would have been Very prominent in the news last year was the completion of a Beidou satellite system, which is basically China's answer to America's GPS. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So I think we're all very aware now these days of how important GPS is in... uh (laughs) Couldn't live without it. (laughs) Yeah, so China's interested in the the kind of downstream applications from this, and the revenue generation. But also, um, and I think this is a major part of... China's plans in the decades ahead is that GPS and Beidou, they are extremely useful for the military. So for guiding missiles, for controlling uh, drones, for being able to project your forces globally and be able to coordinate these forces. So that's something w- which China has a, a growing power with you know, a growing footprint across the world. Being able to actually deploy forces or just to be able to coordinate its its ships and so on and submarines. I mean, the, this is something that, you know, a global power can't really be without. And obviously this has um, strategic ramifications, which other countries are going to be keenly aware of.
1: Sure, sure. Okay, so that's the civilian mostly, or mostly <laughs> dual use, but mostly civilian. What about in just pure space exploration?
0: So in terms of exploration, I think China's first forays into deep space would have been the, the, the Chang'e missions, which are a series of, of lunar missions, which were approved in the, the early 2000s, and they started off by wanting to send an orbiter around the moon to, to map this, and they used a backup Chang'e 2 in 2010, and This carried out um, a greater detail of mapping of the Moon, but then it was sent on to an extended mission, and it carried out a flyby of a near-Earth asteroid called Totatis, which was an indication that um, China would be looking to kind of push the boat with with its successive missions. Following that, we had the Chang'e 3 landing with the U-2 rover in 2013. Mm -hmm. So... That actually, that lander spacecraft is still just about functioning. So that's quite an impre- impressive feat. That's like almost eight years since the landing. The the rover, I think it lost mobility in its second lunar day. So
1: right, I remember. Yeah, but tragic. still,
0: it still functioned. It, um, it its science payloads. Um, and the the vehicle is still still functioned for I think think two and a half years. So again, that was an impressive thing. So after the success of Chang'e three. They went for something more ambitious, which hadn't been done before, which you mentioned in the introduction, which was to send uh, Chang'e Fall to the far side of the moon. And what's notable about this is that the far side of the moon never faces the Earth. Right. So if you want to operate a spacecraft there, you have to have some way of communicating. So they sent the... Ahead of the the launch of this mission, I think in May 2018, they launched the uh, Chuechiao relay satellite. And that's at um, a fascinating point in space called the Earth-Moon Lagrange Point 2. So this is an area where... the
1: Gravity equals out between them. Yeah, exactly. So
0: it's in a kind of halo orbit around this spot. So it's able to see both the moon... The far side of the moon and the Earth at the same time for communication. So that that was quite impressive. Not not necessarily a massive technological breakthrough, but the fact that they went out and did it was was quite notable. And it actually drew a lot of attention from the more hawkish side. And the claims were that this was a indication that China was looking to dominate cis lunar space. So that would be all the right. the area within you know the orbit of the the moon. So given the the capabilities of these two spacecraft that's a quite a grandiose and a, an alarming assessment but also unfair i would say but um but certainly it's it it, it was um, a demonstration of china's abilities to conduct such operations in these areas at least and
1: then there is chang'e 5 actually that that actually brought these moon rock samples back yeah and, and i i think that probably doesn't sound super impressive to some americans Though, if you actually look at what was involved, technically, it's a, it was quite a feat,
0: no? I mean, this was a tremendous and very complex mission. So we kind of get used to seeing, you know, rockets launch and astronauts go up into orbit and come back down safely. It just seems kind of, you know, a bit quotidian. But really, it, it was a very, very challenging mission. Um, and I've just talked about kind of the, the robotic side of China's exploration Um, activities so far. But what you can see with Chang'e 5 is perhaps that they would be looking to be a convergence of uh, robotic lunar exploration and human spaceflight endeavors. So with Chang'e 5, what we saw was a spacecraft which was in four distinct parts being launched towards the moon. So you had an orbiter, a lander, a small ascent vehicle, and a return capsule. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was, I think it was about 8.2 tons altogether. So basically, this mission was broken down into 20 odd different stages where, first of all, Chang'e 5 went into orbit around the moon. And then the lander detached from the service module and had to carry out a precision landing in Oceanus Procellarum on the near side of the moon. So Mm -hmm. once on the moon, this lander had to then autonomously both scoop and drill I think it was 1.7 kilograms total uh-huh. of um, lunar regolith and some some samples from, from just below the surface. Um, collect these up it put these into an ascent vehicle, which then itself would need to launch from the moon and then rendezvous and orbit with this waiting service module in lunar orbit. So these would have been traveling, I think, close to two kilometers per second, both, and then they would have to kind of Autonomously, because there's a you know a, a time delay between the the Earth and the Moon because of the the speed of light, so you're looking at two second delay each way. So this had to be autonomous. Right. So these two craft were able to come together, moving at you know two kilometers per second, to rendezvous and dock, transfer the samples into the service module and into the the this small return capsule. And then the orbiter headed back towards Earth and had to release the small return capsule at just the right moment while travelling, I think it would have been around 11 kilometres per second. And the small re-entry capsule would bounce off the atmosphere once and then make a high-speed reentry into the atmosphere and landing in Sutsuwan Banga in um, Inner Mongolia. So Wow. Um, yeah, so... Okay, so that is a multi-billion-dollar mission, which I think it started out at 850 tons with the with the rocket on the pad, just to bring back 1.7 kilograms of lunar samples. So the engineering and the, you know, the expertise to actually carry out is is staggering to say the least. So that's something that really should have captured people's attention. The other thing is that when the Soviet Union did a mission like this, they basically landed on the moon and sent their samples straight back so a lot simpler kind of mission profile now the reason that we think that china would go for this more complex kind of lunar orbit rendezvous style is that they were copying well not not co- copying would be a loaded term but they were following the kind of the apollo ap- 11 exactly yes yeah, yeah. so the apollo right, mission right, right. so So they're not just thinking about getting samples from the moon back to Earth. They're thinking about, okay, how do we get astronauts onto the surface of the moon and then safely back to Earth? So the reason would be that they would be looking eventually to send astronauts to the moon. And this would be kind of a dress rehearsal. The other thing that this would be useful for is um, a Mars sample return, which would be, you know, even more complex and challenging again. But, you know, this would be very useful, very useful practice. Am I correct that we've not had Mars sample returns?
1: Has the United States not, not accomplished that? No,
0: this is like the, the holy grail of of Mars exploration science, um other than you know, getting astronauts onto the red planet. So the European Space Agency and NASA are together developing a mission. And actually Perseverance Rover, which you you mentioned earlier, that is actually collecting samples right now which could then be collected in 2026 or 2028 depending on how the the mission progresses and th- those would be you know delivered back to earth a couple of years after that maybe so china's looking at developing its own mission that could launch as soon as 2028 if they're able to meet that launch window so yeah they they would be again building on the engineering and science and technology expertise they've developed through the Chang'e mission and then applying it to, to Mars.
1: China has said that it was going to share the lunar uh, rock samples with uh, with other other nations. The United States hasn't been super eager to work with China, though, uh, in space. I mean, in July of 75, I was just a kid, but I remember watching just rapt as the American Apollo and Soviet Soyuz air spacecraft docked in orbit. And there was this famous, you know, handshake in space. Uh, and this was, you know, it was in the era of detente, but still it was just a relaxation in what was still very much, the Cold War, and you know, even then space cooperation with the Soviet Union and later with Russia has continued. Uh, not so with China. Instead, we had this Wolf Amendment of 2011, which basically forbids any collaboration with China in space, any meaningful collaboration. Can Can you tell us about this and, and the politics that have prevented any, you know, real collaborations between China and the US when it comes
0: to space? The United States actually has been very, very cautious and very very wary of china space endeavors for a long long time so in the early 90s actually we had a period of china actually earning commercial launch contracts and right so american satellites were launching on long march rockets which is uh you know quite quite strange to think about now but there was a case where there was um, a failure a launch failure and i think it was something to do with the satellites not separating from the spacecraft properly and there was a case where the the american companies actually kind of helped with the postmortem of the of, of the failure and giving some assistance now the, the thing is there that if you're able to deliver satellites or more than one satellite into into orbit that' te- kind of technology would be kind of dual use where you could imagine those could be used for multiple independent re- re-entry vehicles which would be delivering nuclear weapons so this was this this was a matter which led to something called the the Cox report aha uh-huh, I remember in yeah. the late 90s. Yeah, so the the recommendations and the the findings from there were stated that uh, China had engaged in it, uh, sustained attempts to gain U.S. technologies, especially related to to nuclear technologies. So that that led to a very a very strong stance against any cooperation with China. Um, that's been codified in an appropriations bill, which you, you mentioned, called the, the referred to as the, the Wolf Amendment. So what that does is it, it doesn't completely but effectively bars NASA and the White House's um, Office of Space and Technology Policy from dealing with Chinese entities. So I think if... NASA wanted to engage with Chinese counterparts then they they would need to get clearance from the FBI and submit letters to to Congress like 30 days in advance saying everything would be okay so it's a very difficult bar to get over so yeah yeah China and the US actually have something called the civil space dialogues. And I think there's been three editions of this held. This was something that sprang from the security and economic dialogues from the Obama administration. Um, I think mm-hmm. these are these are ongoing. There was one held in the Trump administration and there was an edition which was cancelled due to COVID. So um, the Biden administration hasn't said if they will continue this yet. Uh, the State Department, which kind of... Organises their side of things. They they haven't actually uh, reached a position on this as far as they, they've told me. So there, there is some limited possibilities for engagement. But in terms of sending Chinese astronauts to the International Space Station, that's not going to happen. That was ruled out. Shortly after uh, Yang Liwei became China's first astronaut in 2003, so while other other players were open to to China joining the ISS project, the United States, you know, effectively uh, prohibited that. That's why we are now seeing the the construction of China's own space station, which started with the the gong uh, yeah. yeah, the the Tianhe uh, module was launched April 28, I think, and we just saw uh, Tianzhou-2, which is a cargo spacecraft, arrived there a few days ago.
1: So, I mean, you mentioned Yang Liwei just a little bit ago, you know, the first Chinese person in space. But it, it feels like to me that every time China does something in space, there's this chorus of people who want to, you know, belittle the accomplishments uh, as just doing something that the Americans or the Soviets did 40 years ago i mean in the case of only yeah i guess it's it's true right you know that was 2003 and yuri Gagarin was what 42 years before that in 61 Uh, i imagine you hear that a lot what does this get wrong or is this correct i mean is it correct that china is simply reduplicating things that have already been done by other spacefaring nations
0: yeah that's that's a that's a good insight and it's something that we we see often in terms of uh you know social media engagement on these topics um article comments and so on. So in a sense you, you did have two two superpowers blazing the trail in space across the, you know, fifties, sixties, seventies and onwards. So naturally China, if it wants to become a major space player, and it clearly does, it's going to have to tick off a lot of these boxes as well. So it will kind of um, just naturally look like they are, you know, copying or following. And there are some aspects to the Chinese space program, like the Shenzhou spacecraft for astronauts is, you know, similar to the Soyuz. And that's because there was um, some level assistance from, from Russia in the early 90s to help China's um, nascent human spaceflight project get going. So there are things like this, the Tiangong um, space station complex, is kind of reminiscent of the the mir space station so there are these these kinds of things however i think the the important thing here is that china said in 1992 or approved in 1992 this plan this long term plan for a space station okay so they had to develop a launch vehicle capable of safely getting astronauts into orbit without the, all the the vibrations and the you know the 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 G loads that you would do with a normal satellite, it had to have a spacecraft which could which had life support capable of keeping astronauts alive, but also getting them back through the atmosphere. Right. Yeah, so what what they what they did is they set very long term plans. And they eventually, I mean almost thirty years on, they are delivering on those plans. So I think it can be a bit short sighted to just say, oh well, they're just copying or just um, doing what's done before. I mean there there are clear directions and clear major plans which china has and which they are partly because of the the setup they have under the communist party of china able to kind of take very long term approaches and deliver on this so it's yeah it's it's i would say it's foolish particularly if you are um concerned about what china may be doing in space in the long term and be foolish to simply you know dismiss dismiss these achievements I mean, even right, even right. though some of these things have been done in the 60s, for example, Viking landed on Mars in the 70s, but it's still a tremendous right. challenge. So it's an indicator of, uh, you know, some very sophisticated technologies.
1: Indeed. You know, I mean, there's always a, a dark interpretation of Chinese intentions when it comes to space, but the secrecy with which China... Uh, as I suppose with most countries, the secrecy with which it conducts a lot of these activities seems to encourage this kind of interpretation. Um, one example is that these these Yogan satellites that China has launched—some um, thirty of them over the last fifteen years—and you know it would say that these are for measuring crop yields and things like that. But the U.S. military very obviously thinks otherwise. What? What? I guess let's let's get a benchmark. How secretive are countries about? Uh, you know, the payloads that they put up in, into space, is it unusual to be secretive? Is there more reason to be suspicious of China here?
0: I think it, it largely depends on the, the kind of missions that countries are engaging in. So uh, there are UN conventions, which China and other countries have signed on to where they, you know, agree to contribute to a register of objects in space. So they will, you know, give some kind of indication of what the payloads are, you know, how big they are and, and what they'll be doing. Right. Um, however, the countries are also allowed to launch classified payloads. So typically, the Americans, Russians, Chinese, if they are launching something which has, you know, clear national security implications or objectives, then it's a classified payload, and we'll maybe find out the name of it. We won't get a look at it, and that is about it. So that's that's kind of standard practice. So that's not terribly alarming in itself when when countries do this however china is really not very transparent at all when it comes to certain missions and also in, just in terms of dealing with any kind of public activities re- regarding the space program. In the last few years, we see a lot more information coming from, for example, CASC and CASIC and also the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which is another major space player. But they're very much on transmit, so they'll dump a load of information out. But, for example, in the case of this March 5B uncontrolled reentry. There was silence from China. Right. Um, we ha- we had to wait for the end of the Golden Week holiday before the foreign ministry press spokespeople actually commented on this. And then the first time that-
1: you actually broke that story, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You were so, the first person. To yeah, write about my, it. my apologies so, yeah, can you for talk that, about that. I mean,
0: <laughs> no, no,
1: uh, really. I, it, it's interesting that. You know, so, how how tell me tell us how that whole episode played out? You said I remember that it happened. It was announced just like it was that like the Thursday before Golden Week started, right? Um, and. I I remember just how quickly this became you know an obsession in in the American media. What happened there? What and uh, was there a real cause for for worry? I mean, it was an uncontrolled reentry. Why was it uncontrolled? What was particular about this launch that made it so that the first stage of the rocket was going to begin its descent actually from outside of the the Earth's atmosphere?
0: Yeah. So there's there's a lot to unpack here and also it must have been a very confusing event to follow and also with the you know the speed of this and size of this rocket body it could have been quite quite alarming yeah basically this is a version of china's largest rocket and most rockets when basically when when you're trying to get into orbit okay we might think of okay rocket just trying to go up but the thing is that you what you have to do is you have to reach close to 8 kilometers per second you have to go fast enough so that you basically miss the earth and keep going so the first stage of a rocket will typically do most of the kind of heavy lifting through the atmosphere. And then to get rid of that dead mass so you can go faster, you'll drop that um, empty first stage. And then a second stage or maybe a third stage will continue on to, you know, to accelerate and hopefully achieve orbit. Now the, the thing is most first stages will not reach orbit, orbital velocity. Right. So the the plan will be that, you know, they fall just short. So that means that when you launch a rocket, you can kind of, define where this rocket will land safely. So we will put out navigation warnings and this particular area of the sea will see something large fall into it and that's the end of it. Um, for the Long March 5B, China designed a rocket so that the first stage and, well, they used four side boosters as well to help get the, the speed up there. But they designed it so the first stage actually went into orbit and then the hmm. the space station module would then, you know, raise its orbit slightly. So that was unusual.
1: Was that because the payload was heavy or because what was the, the, the need? Why the need for that? that?
0: That's the thing. We're not quite sure what the design choices were. So these these design choices would have been made 15 years ago. And if China was able to come in, come out and say, well, this is why we made these particular design choices, um, it would make things a lot more clear and maybe a lot more understandable. However, we, we had silence for, for a long time. So well, we had some strident deflection as well. Right? <laughs> after... Yeah, things got quite ugly. So basically what ha- what happened was the this Long March 5B first stage went into orbit. Now, they performed the first launch of this in May 2020, and the same kind of thing happened. So I was watching to see if the same thing would happen, if they would launch this first stage, send it into orbit, but then not be able to... Deorbited. So once it's done its job, if there's some remaining fuel and you're able to restart the engines, you could actually make a safe reentry, and you could pinpoint, not pinpoint, but you could have a particular area in the ocean where you'll bring down this rocket body. And that's actually, there's actually a place in the South Pacific, which is known as like the, the spacecraft graveyard, because that's typically where if they're, if they're capable, you know, countries launching things and bringing something back into atmosphere will try to, you know, Try to land their their spacecraft safely. So the thing is, this Long March Five B went orbital. It wasn't able to deorbit itself. And looking at where we were able to prove this was looking at orbital data, which is provided publicly by the U.S. military. So after a launch, they will they will post some details on what they've just tracked in orbit and. Be able to assign a name to it, these kinds of things. So we're able to see that there was something up there, which was Tianhe, and that had raised its own orbit into where it wanted to be, but also this rocket body was still there and it was coming down slowly. So rather than re-entering fast, its orbit was decaying due to atmospheric drag. And also we're able to find um, someone on Twitter, I think it was in Japan, had actually took a, a film of Tianhe passing overhead uh-huh. You, if if you go into the if you go and look up, up at the the night sky, you know in the hours just after dusk, you if you stand around and watch for five ten minutes, you'll actually see a satellite go across the sky, which will sure. yeah just look like a, a star, but it's moving slowly. It take about five minutes to go across the sky, and so five minutes after Tianhe, there was something which was flashing every few seconds. And that was this uh, Long Longwatch 5B. So it was not only was it up there, but it was kind of out of control. It was tumbling, which, you know, explained the the flashing. So it's go kind of, Okay. We know this is up there. We know it's not under any kind of control after it's done its job. And it's going to be coming down when atmospheric drag decides it's coming down. And
1: how how did you figure it out how did you what what put you onto the fact that that there was so you'd seen that that they'd launched a 5B uh, in 2020 and you knew that that had an uncontrolled re-entry as well so you what were you watching when they launched when you heard that there was there was another 5B launch
0: yeah so reporting on the the space station module launch itself but then following to see what the rocket would be doing afterwards to see if it would you know Mm -hmm. um in in may 2020 there were parts of it it actually passed right over new york and then a few minutes later actually uh, re-entered over the atlantic ocean and parts of it according to local reports actually damaged may cause some minor damage uh, in the the ivory coast so this was something that's like okay this this is something that happened before. There was some kind of repercussions. Um, we weren't aware of any kind of public uh, complaints from Cote d'Ivoire to China about this, but this might have been kind of settled, kind of back channel, kind of kind of thing quietly, which would maybe suit both partners. So yeah, it was it was an interesting question to the space community. Okay, are they going to do this again? So it was just a matter of proving: is this up there? Is it under any kind of control when it would be coming back down? So yeah, using this orbital data and, and kind of um, observations, it was we were able to prove that it was up there and it was coming down slowly. So this was something that the then NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, actually criticized publicly last year. So mm-hmm. China was aware of there being a bit of a public backlash about this kind of practice, but it didn't do anything to to kind of address this. Yeah. And, and as you say, the press, the, the foreign ministry sp- spokesperson People, yeah, they they came out with some quite strident language and uh, accusing individuals of hyping the matter and so on. So some of this comes down to, uh, normally for an upper stage, so not the first stage, the upper stage may well come down uncontrolled way.
1: And, but it's small. Yeah,
0: but normally they're a lot right, smaller. It'll burn up, normally you know, they're a lot lot right. smaller. And there was the case of a, a, a SpaceX Falcon 9 re-entering over... Over the Washington State not so long back, and because people saw that it was reported, oh look at this! This is you know this lit up the sky and so on. It wasn't wasn't reported as a threat. However, the Chinese one was. So from the Chinese side, they were kind of like, well, look, this was the upper stage, and it, this is a normal practice. So why?
1: Oh, they they claim this was the upper stage. Well,
0: it was the upper stage, but it's also the first stage. So it depends on how you define what the upper stage is. So some of it is a bit of semantics in there. The thing is that China did not do. They did not at any point come and say, well, here's the orbital data we have. Here's what we think will happen in, you know, plus or minus one days. Here's the design of the spacecraft, which would actually help NASA and Roscosmos and European Space Agency, who actually were making entry predictions they would have helped them with their predictions they didn't come out with any of this there there was no there's no kind of access to the same kind of data that you'd have for the european for the from the europeans or from the from the americans so china was very very quiet on this and then kind of waited until it you know luckily landed in in the ocean and then were you know kind of making the most of it you know trying to make out them as the victims right so there's going to be two more launches of this rocket at least. So in twenty twenty two. So the the next
1: Both related to Tienko modules. Yes,
0: exactly. And then maybe another one okay. which would launch um kind of China's version of the Hubble Space Telescope, which would be, you know, quite a ah, right. quite a, quite quite a mission in itself. So it'll be interesting to see if they do anything about this or how they approach it if they are more transparent or open in dealing with this. Because basically you you had space which could have been filled by China in explaining what was happening and why. It was being filled by Jonathan McDowell, who is was a, an astrophysicist and also um, someone who tracks space activities. So he was kind of um, going on TV and radio all around the world to explain what was happening. And really, it should have been China that was you know, taking these steps as responsible space right. power to say, this is why it's happened. So there, there may well have been good design reasons why it was so difficult to to not go orbital with the stage. And of course, when you're dealing with a multi-billion dollar spacecraft, you can kind of understand that, well, the chances of this actually causing any damage are very low. So we'll just take the chance. But we don't know what the thinking was.
1: So related to this issue of, you know, being a responsible space power, the problem of space debris is getting worse and worse. There are now probably thousands of satellites now in low Earth orbit, uh, with more going up all the time for initiatives like SpaceX's Starlink and for this satellite broadband constellation uh, called OneWeb. And also China has its own, right, this GuoWang thing, this um, uh, also a sort of constellation. Uh, There's a lot of of debris out there. What are the spacefaring nations of Earth and, and especially China doing to try to address this problem?
0: That is currently one of the, the big questions for the space community and the astronomy community as well, who are alarmed to see that there are thousands and thousands of satellites being launched and planned to be launched, which, um, as I as I was saying before, you, you can see these move across the sky with your own eyes. So trying to be a, an optical astronomer with all of this activity going on, that's a, a big issue. The other thing is that we've been launching things into space since the 50s. And okay, lots of these things will be kind of dead satellites now. Um, there's also lots of bits of small, very small bits of debris up there. So I think the European Space Agency says there's probably three hundred thousand pieces of debris around, you know, one centimeter size and bigger up in orbit. And and the thing is that might not sound very much, but when these things are traveling close to eight kilometers per second, if any of these kind of a small bit of paint actually put a, a, a crack in a, in a window of the International Space Station. Yeah. So th- these are very serious things. So talking about these mega constellations, the more we have up there, the greater the chances are of a collision, which will create lots more debris. And the this would basically threaten the ability for countries to exploit uh, low earth orbit for, you know, for all kinds of reasons. So um, it's not quite, it's not the same kind of, if you've seen the film gravity where, you know, there's this catastrophic cascade of events and very quickly, you know, the whole of low earth orbit is unusable. It's not quite like that. It's more of a a long-term climate change issue. And what we need to see is that, and countries and companies who are engaged in these activities they need to be able to communicate in a very timely manner and to have codes of practice as to what to do if there's a potential collision so as we say, as as we were talking about before there are on the ground we have optical and, and radar kind of observations to track objects in space and able to make predictions of if there's going to be collision or not. So in those cases, if there's going to be a chance greater than I think it's, there's some kind of threshold, maybe it's even as low as uh, one in a thousand chance, then one of these spacecraft, if possible, would need to perform some kind of maneuver to reduce that risk. So at the moment, we're seeing companies and countries launching and planning these mega constellations, but we're not sure how it's going to play out. So we just talked about China's lack of forthcoming with information and so on. So this this is another big concern. There was actually China as part of its drive to develop a commercial space sector. They've just issued, um, SASTINT just issued a notice on small satellites, which would be providing guidance to commercial companies that want to make small satellites. And there are actually measures in in this notice which would be very useful for preventing collisions and for mitigating any potential damage so things like draining batteries being able to maneuver to some degree being able to deorbit within a certain time frame after launch and end of uh, end of mission so that that's encouraging it's clear that china takes this seriously but the communications given the global nature of these systems and these applications it really needs to be a much more coordinated effort
1: yeah yeah you mentioned private space companies, uh, the guidance that they're being given now. Uh, these get a lot of attention here in the U.S. Of course, there's you know Elon Musk's SpaceX, and it's uh, probably the most prominent. But there's also Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, and you know dozens of, of others that maybe aren't as PR forward or as sexy. But w- what about in China? Um, is space space clearly isn't the sole preserve of state-owned enterprises anymore? There are private companies now getting involved in satellite launches and so forth.
0: Yeah, that's right. So. You mentioned Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, uh, Blue Origin, Um, also companies like Planet Labs, who have a constellation of their own uh, Earth observation satellites and providing lots of optical imagery for a range of users. These companies gained attention in China and they realized that, okay, while we have these big state-owned enterprises, which have been very useful for carrying out very long-term missions and projects, that... Companies like SpaceX and, and Planet Labs are able to be much more agile. They're able to be much more innovative and to draw funding from elsewhere. So in late 2014, there was a policy shift, which meant that the, the space sector, particularly the small launch sector and uh, and small satellites, would be opened up to private capital. Um, what hmm. we've seen since then, I think there, I've... At least twenty companies who are involved in developing launch vehicles or their engines. Um, some of these most notable ones would be Land Space, which made the first launch attempt. I think it was twenty seventeen or no twenty eighteen. OneSpace, uh, Space, I Space. So lo- lots of uh, you know word lots yeah. of, word of space here. Link Space was another one. Um, Okay, so you have companies like Landspace and Ispace, OneSpace, which were kind of the first on the scene. And they were developing um, more simple, solid launch vehicles, which would right. be, you know, very light lift, but able to get some kind of satellite into orbit. They started out with this. They have You had a company called Linkspace, which were trying to go straight for the more complex liquid-fueled launch vehicles and also being able to land them like like the SpaceX Falcon 9 and you've also seen a new, a new wave of launch companies including Deep Blue Aerospace who are also developing aiming to develop um liquid launch r- vehicles which are able to send an ast- uh, a, sp- a satellite up into orbit but then also land the the first stage of the rockets and then be able to reuse it so it's very much trying to kind of keep um seeing what's going on in america and trying to to keep up and develop capabilities which would drive innovation be a boost to the economy um, there's actually lots of provinces which are looking to attract these kinds of companies in in um in guangzhou actually there was um, they're trying to form a cluster where you have a spin-off company called cast space uh uh-huh which is developing solid and liquid launch vehicles, but they're also being based in an area which is also being able to attract um, the Geely Automotive Company to (laughs) to base its own space operations there. So Geely is trying to build a constellation of satellites which would be able to enhance the signals you get from Beidou so instead of kind of having meter precision, you'd right. have centimeter precision, which you'd need for for autonomous driving, exactly right, right. and also for right, data right, relay. Right. So they have kind of realized that there's potential for satellite internet and and these kinds of ap- applications under the guidance of of the the state council following decisions in 2020. So yeah, you have car makers now in China also trying to, to get in on this. Um, you, you also have satellite companies as well. They're looking at the same kinds of things like optical remote sensing, radar observation data, and these kinds of things, and also companies like Galaxy Space who are trying to develop a broadband constellation for 5G services.
1: Aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Andrew, let's let's talk about some of the missions that CNSA has planned for the future. I mean, you've written about, a, a, for, for example, a potential Jupiter mission, including a possible landing on the outermost of Jupiter's Galilean moons, Callisto. Uh, can you talk about that? Uh, what What's in the works for
0: that? Right. So Tianwen-1 actually was China's first interplanetary, or rather, I should say, first independent interplanetary mission. So they, they did have a small a small Mars orbiter, which launched on a, a Russian mission in 2011, but that didn't leave Earth orbit, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So Tianwen-1 was actually China's first foray beyond the moon. And following this, they've already outlined a, a few missions, which would be uh, 2024 would be something tentatively called the Jong He mission, which would sample a near-Earth asteroid before heading to a comet. Uh, then you would oh. have the Mars sample return we touched on earlier. And then 2030 would be a... Jupiter mission which is again tentatively called uh, Gander after the astronomer from I can't remember which century but from a long time ago late warring states I think yeah and um, actually that, that guy was quite interesting there was a claim that he actually spotted the Galilean moons before Galileo by kind of occluding Jupiter with you know, maybe his finger or something was able to discern these moons. But that that's a controversial, at least contested claim, so I'm not sure about that. But basically this mission would be building on the the new launch vehicles which China's developed over the last ten years and the the science and technology from the, the Chang'e missions. So the going to to Jupiter is something that's been been done before with um, the Galileo spacecraft, and right now we have um, NASA's Juno spacecraft orbiting there. But China is considering. There was two two different mission proposals which have gained kind of a, a level of not not final approval, but of keen interest in mm-hmm. in in China's space community and. One would be an orbiter which looks at Jupiter and its irregular moons. So the kind of objects which haven't been around Jupiter for a long time, but are more likely to be some kind of primitive rock, which was, which is probably in a pristine condition.
1: was captured from interstellar, you know, sort of captured bodies. Not, yeah, not so part of something
0: the... as old as the solar system. Right, so something right. that would be very useful for telling us about the very early days of the solar system. The other one would also target some of Jupiter's moons, but would carry a lander. And that would... Target the the fourth Gal- uh, Galilean moon Callisto. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons for that would be that Callisto is outside of the the intense radiation bands of Jupiter. Right, so right. a spacecraft would have more chance of surviving for a long time. And also, um, Callisto actually may have a, a subsurface ocean. So Europa is what we does think about right, mainly an Io and yeah.
1: Europa or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Europa is something that, um, that that's a that's one of the the more likely candidates for finding uh, life um, or for for it being possibly habitable. And NASA's Europa Clipper mission has been developed for that. But yeah, Callisto has its own interest as well. So yeah, so as as again, they would be this would be something that's been done before by by NASA only, but something that rather than just going there, they will have a very very dedicated and very specialized set of science payloads which will build on the on the science done by the by NASA and the European Space Agency, but also then look to do something which hasn't been done before by landing on one of these moons.
1: Ah, cool. You know, you've also written about a couple of missions planned for twenty twenty four, I think, called IHP1 and IHP two. Uh, IHP here stands for Interstellar Heliosphere Probe. The heliosphere is the, the sort of plasma layer uh, caused by solar winds, you know, that kind of plasma kind of um, zone. Um, these have been likened to the Voyager missions, the 70s, but I don't think that quite gets it right, right? I mean, first of all, what what is different about these? These are, are going to be actually, you know, they'll go into interstellar space beyond the heliosphere but in the opposite direction, right? At least one of them from uh, the direction of travel of the uh, the solar system.
0: Yeah, that's spot on. So again, this would be one of the missions where people would think that, okay, well, this has been done before, so why would you do Voyager again? Now, the thing is, Voyager was a mission which took advantage of a particular arrangement of the planets which happens once every 170 years or something like this. So you're able to use two spacecraft to visit all the all the outer planets. And,
1: slingshotting around, right? Yes.
0: Exactly. And which inspired someone like me to actually you know, become interested in space. So evocative.
1: The golden record and all that stuff. That's just so... That's totally cool. And also the plot of uh, one of the Star Trek movies. Right. Wasn't
0: that one of the pioneers? It's like... Was it? it like was Voyager. Pioneers, pi- yeah. Was it? I thought it was a Pioneer spacecraft. That got blown to bits by a Klingon thing, or is that a different yeah, <laughs> was it a different was. Um, Star Trek movie?
1: They had actually found. Uh, they, they there was something called Viger, which was sort of a corruption of Voyager. Uh, that it actually found the Voyager spacecraft. Anyway, I'm 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 not remembering this right, probably, <laughs> but I'm I'm sure that Voyager featured into one of the Star Trek movies. But <laughs> anyway, yeah.
0: Okay, so Voyager was basically. Looking to do planetary science, so flybys and collect data and take images and send these back to Earth. And then because they're traveling at a very high velocity, unable to turn around, what happened is that these spacecraft with their power sources were able to keep working for, for decades. So what happened is that NASA were able to recalibrate some of the science payloads to make them useful for learning about the the outer extremes of the solar system mm. however the this ihp or i think the a newer name is interstellar express because <laughs> there's still there's still some kind of trade space there about what their targets are in terms of how they get to where they want to go so that we might see flybys of jupiter and neptune or maybe instead there would be some of the more Distant and exotic objects like Kwawa, which is one of the um, kind of small objects beyond Pluto, of which have been discovered in the last couple of decades. Wow. So these would be using, say, Jupiter for a flyby to actually gain speed and would obviously send back some interesting images. But the the, the main goal of these would be to go to the areas of space as you mentioned, the, the heliopause, so kind of the area where the influence of the sun ends and the the interstellar medium begins, and try to ascertain if there is something called the, the hydrogen wall, uh-huh. which is an area of space which is hypothesized. So th- these areas are going to be very, very tenuous. So there's no actual wall of hydrogen, but you know, a very sparse collection of particles out, out there billions of kilometers away from, from space. So... Yeah, again, looking to do something different, looking to be specialised to these these goals, and also, as you say, the spacecraft would be going not just to the head of the of the solar system, but also to the the tail of the of the sun as it travels through the through the galaxy. So that that would be something again which would add very useful data to our kind of understanding uh, of the sun and the solar system as a kind of plasma laboratory, as it were. Yeah. Another more ambitious part of this would be a proposed third mission, which would actually use nuclear propulsion, and that would travel perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic. So that would be kind of like going up you know, north <laughs> right, from, right, yeah, right, right. going up. Exactly. <laughs> so, so again, something that hasn't been done, something that would be of extreme value and something that's worth looking at in its in its own right and the kind of the kind of thing that should be emphasized more in china's in trying to gain a holistic understanding of china's space endeavors
1: so China has expressed an interest in establishing a permanent moon base uh, and is interested in. The potential of mining of celestial bodies. But um, there's still, you know, a lot of debate about who owns rights to celestial bodies, or whether they can be owned. Andrew, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Artemis Accords, this US leg- initiative on, I guess it centers on the moon, but I guess they will address some of these issues. and And is this something that China will be or has been invited to participate in, in some way?
0: The Artemis Accords were a project of the the, the the outgoing trump administration so the the initial plan was to try to get astronauts back to the moon by twenty twenty four which would have you know an obvious um political target shall we say in terms of the date so that would be before the end of a second trump administration <laughs> um and also there there are there's lots of things going on with regards to the moon so in the last ten years or so there's been um The discovery of potential water ice at areas potentially the North Pole and more likely at the South Pole, where you would have water ice um, in permanently shadowed craters. So, this would be resources which would be useful to to astronauts for staying at this this particular areas of the Moon in the long term. But also, being you can split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and you can use that for rocket propellant. So that would be kind of a gateway to other places in the solar system. So this is looking very long term. Now, there are a few things going on here. For example, the Outer Space Treaty, which was formulated in the the 1960s, this declares that no country can own a part of a celestial body. So what we've had in the more recent decades is an understanding that, okay, maybe something like asteroid mining would be a possibility technically and otherwise. And you'd also have companies rather than countries engaged in these activities as well. So the Artemis Accords is an attempt to create some norms and principles of, of governance for carrying out um, lunar exploration and particularly an approach to resources so try to kind of create kind of a customary sense of it's okay for a company to go and collect something and for that to be usable and to be profitable hmm. for that company so it's kind of trying to finesse the outer space treaty right that's what it's ra- very like. very difficult to negotiate renegotiate something like that these days
1: and it excludes china so far. i mean they've got countries like south korea and the uae involved but not china so far
0: Yes, that's right. So it's 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 unknown at this at this stage whether China would want to sign up to this. It's likely that China would take a somewhat similar approach to um, being able to utilize deep space resources as set out in the Artemis Accords, although my understanding is there are some reservations on the Chinese side. Um in, in the next few years we'll see China actually approve its own first national space law and hopefully in, in there we will get an idea what China's approach is are uh, to, to space resources. So for now, Artemis is I think the eleventh country to sign was New Zealand, okay, which was um, in the in the last couple of days and the week before it was South Korea, so those are the two two first countries which have signed under the Biden administration, which is uh, a, a strong signal that you know the Biden administration is carrying this this forward. however, a notable absentee to the signatories is russia right, and what 's happening at the same time is that China and Russia are looking to create what they call the International Lunar Research Station. And this, in a, in its early phase, envisages a number of orbiters and landers going to the Lunar South Pole and carrying out a number of experiments and um, trying to map resources and provide data for a potential more permanent robotic base, which will be the the first stage would be chang'e 8 which would be late this decade and that would carry out tests such as in, in situ resource utilization um for example are you able to send a spacecraft to the moon collect some regolith and then use this for free uh, 3d printing huh. uh, for for construction right. because i mean we we talked about chang'e 5 so the you know the challenges of getting into orbit and getting to the moon and landing and so on Anything that you can actually make yourself on the moon rather than have to bring with you makes things so much more possible. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. So, water, uh, 3D printing, these will be be big.
1: That's fascinating. There's about 100 more questions I could ask you about this, but uh, we'll have to have you on again many more times in (laughs) in years to come uh, and really looking forward to it. Uh, Can't tell you how much fun this has been. First of all, tell people how they can follow you on Twitter and where they can read some of your work
0: on, on the Chinese space program. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at aj_fi, underscore FI, And I'm quite active there covering all all, all aspects of the civil, military, commercial aspects. And that's a lot that's going on. So if you follow me, be prepared for a lot of nonsense. You might not be kind of... Um, <laughs> well, I
1: follow you and it's not a lot of nonsense at all. It's 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 just fascinating. <laughs> I mean, you're always yeah. the person I go to first whenever there's anything that's happening about space. Uh, so it's it's been... You know, it's, what a, it's been a thrill to talk to you about all this stuff. It's, uh, And we will have more conversations in the future. But let's let's move on now to recommendations. And before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter. It is really full of great reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. Great value for Money, sign up and spread the word. All right, on to recommendations. Andrew, what do you have for us?
0: Okay, I was going to talk up something called The Expanse, but something tells me you've talked about it.
1: I have, but but I I love talking about The Expanse. I love that show, and I haven't read the books, but I love that show, especially the last couple of seasons. Oh, my God. Just great.
0: The first seasons actually really do it for me. So um, I think at the the moment you have – you have people like Elon Musk talking about um, colonizing Mars. You have Jeff Bezos talking about making um, Earth a park and moving industry off world, right? I think looking at the expanse is probably a more realistic setting for <laughs> what might happen because you, you have they, they make an effort to kind of project some of the some of the societal issues and attitudes that we have now and what that would look like. In a kind of civilization which has moved out into the solar system, so you you have you have the the, the belters, mm-hmm. the people who are kind of um, downtrodden in working on asteroids and living there and so on. Then you have Mars and Earth who are kind of at each other's throats over various issues. So that, I mean that, that's a very very int- a very very interesting look at how things could um to could turn out, but also you know, just some some excellent sci-fi and they they, they do make an effort with um, with a lot of the the science there as well
1: yeah I, I just thought it was great i I was rapt. I just devoured that whole thing and wanted more um, yeah, the best sci-fi series I've seen in quite a while since Battlestar Galactica
0: probably but the- and if I could just add uh, quickly if you, if you do want to follow space more closely, my colleague at space news uh, Jeff Faust, he has a daily newsletter. Which is um, absolutely essential uh, for keeping up oh, with great. what's going on in space. Um, another one would be the Axios Space newsletter, which is once once a week from Miriam Kramer, and that's uh, you know an excellent um, kind of roundup, but also uh, you know a deep dive if if you want to get in into something which has caught your eye. And the other thing would be. Um, there's a podcast from the washington post i think last year oh it wasn't last year but it was to commemorate the 50th anniversary of apollo 11 oh yeah and yeah, that yeah. that is that i found that fascinating because that actually went and kind of deconstructed some of the myths that we have about the the apollo program and that from a you know a cultural and socioeconomic perspective and so on as well as the technical side that was really eye opening really really fascinating
1: fantastic recommendations so, uh, my recommendation, uh, my, my daughter, just by way of background, she is a burgeoning Tolkien fan and, uh, she's been asking me about some of the deep mythology. So, uh, I, I had already. Bought, I think I may have mentioned on the show. I bought her both a Quenya and a Sindarin dictionary, uh, and lovely hardcover editions that I've just never. You know, had. I have these, had these old ratty paperbacks that were falling apart, uh, but she got these really nice hardcover editions of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I also bought the Soul Marillion, uh, which I just spent way too much of my Memorial Day holiday weekend rereading. Uh, I'm. I'm. I've just finished the actual. You know. Silmarillion part of it, uh, I, I last read it when I was about 15 or 16, and I mean, I'm surprised, I remembered quite a bit of it, I mean, I remember, you know, even sort of, you know, words like Nirnath Arnoediad and stuff like that, but um, last uh, time I read, I, I don't think I, I quite got how marvelous the language is, just the writing. I mean, it's just so inventive, but at the same time, it's just so familiar. I mean, it's just, it's so, um, it just has this kind of resonant, evocative, um, you know, epic quality to it. It's like Homer and the Olympian gods and Greek tragedies, but also like Beowulf and also Scandinavian sagas and also, you know, Shakespearean tragedies. It's all in there with this. I mean, it, it can be terribly, terribly ponderous and, and a little too, you know, I, there, I get that a lot of people are not going to like it. I mean, it's 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 going to be a slog for people who aren't, already kind of into that stuff but uh if you were a tolkien fan when you were younger and either didn't get the silmarillion as a teenager or just never tried i mean it's it's time to, to go back it was um you know of course posthumously reconstructed from tolkien's notes by his son christopher tolkien and, and my brother told me also by uh this fantastic fantasy and sci-fi writer named guy Gabriel k uh, who, who ghost wrote apparently quite a bit of it it's it's great i i I've just been thinking about it nonstop and, and geeking out and just being able to uh, like experience this with my daughter. Who's now 17. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, are you, were you a Tolkien guy, Andrew?
0: Um, very much so. Oh, yes. Okay. I actually, I actually just um, a few weeks ago finished going through the, the Silmarillion myself. Um, I oh didn't my God. get quite, yeah, I didn't get quite so much out of it as you did because I was listening to the audio um, and while running and things like this, so yeah, um, I can't you know, imagine I that was be drift hard. in and out. And, yeah, yeah. But also the the unfinished tales I think has just come out on audio. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. Which... I'll
1: definitely get that. I have that. I have the book unfinished tales. There's a bunch of other stuff too. There's just like the, the tale of Baron and Luthien is out, and like Turin Turumbar is out now, and I, I, the, a bunch of stuff that that has been like unearthed from the Tolkien archive. That sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, well, God, are your sons yet, or your your children, of of an age to start appreciating this stuff?
0: I've actually i read i read The Hobbit to my eldest when she was six, and she absolutely loved it. So, um, Lord of the Rings uh, would be next. But yeah. the yeah the the girls have been into Harry Potter more. Um, which is kind of understandable. Yeah, you know, given, it's understandable. You know, yeah, relatable with school and everything like this. But um, but yeah, the, my son's three, but um, he yeah, he, he gets he gets the space stuff and I'm sure he'll get the Tolkien stuff as well when he's a bit older. Fantastic. So. <laughs> All right,
1: Andrew, what a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to having you back on the show again.
0: Thanks so much, Kaiser.
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.